Today's guest is Thomas Picora. Thomas Picora spent over 24 years with the Central Intelligence Agency and retired as a senior security manager. He's in the security branch of the CIA, something that I had never heard of, but is quite fascinating. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did, and I bring you Thomas Picora. Hey, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Now, I find it fascinating that you answered an ad in 1989 looking for a CIA agent. Is that how it was worded? Yeah, actually, it, it's, it was a generic uh, employment ad in my local newspaper saying, uh, if you'd like to work for the Central Intelligence Agency, and it didn't specify what area. And I had finished uh, grad school, and I was coaching wrestling and uh, looking for something to do. And I actually had a background uh, interest in working for the federal government uh, since I was little. And so I uh, wrote in, and uh, about a month later, I get a phone call. And I thought it was some of my friends uh, giving me the razz. And so I, I didn't take them serious for the first couple of minutes. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> this is serious. So I ended up... Uh, meeting the gentleman at a hotel and he, took, he interviewed me, took some information. And um, then I was offered uh, a, a formal interview in flew me out to Washington and uh, took some tests, including a polygraph, which is no fun. <laughs> and uh, in September of 1989, I joined the CIA as a career security officer. That's fascinating. I, I can't believe that it literally said central intelligence agency because I've, I'm a child and know everything because I watch movies and everything I've seen says that they went to your campus and they stalked you and then they talked to you on the side and then they recruited you in a dark building and said, Hey kid, some people might've gotten uh, recruited, but I, I, I made it through a more, a more boring process. <laughs> so I think that's probably true. A much more bureaucratic um, way to roll. And to give you, background on on the cia security um yeah. we consider ourselves what we call baked in rather than bolted on in the sense that uh security was uh put into the agency just after it turned from the oss to the cia uh, in 1947 so it's been a part of, of the agency since way back then and it's um it's changed in various ways over the years, but in general, it, it, one of its main functions is um, clearance processing, getting people uh, mm, okay. secret, top secret and all that clearances. Um, and it also uh, has a physical security responsibility, uh, clearance, which is personnel security responsibilities. We're involved in computer security. We are uh, peripherally involved in counterintelligence, and we do uh, protective work. Okay, so, can we – hold on. I don't want you to go too deeply on that. I, I've had like seven FBI agents on here as uh, well, and I always get a little confused because I know the background investigations, for example, a lot of times they have FBI agents going around and asking people, are, are you guys overlapping, working together, or just no, in different no. spots? It's changed, but when I came in 1989, the first job I had was as a background investigator, and I, I worked in a different city, 
and uh, I was uh, part of a group of investigators. And our job was to uh, to to conduct background investigations on personnel that were associated with the intelligence community, where the FBI made, uh, was mainly doing other uh, government officials that needed the clearance. So we were mainly taking care of our own people. Okay, so it's kind of siloed. Yes. Now that's changed. Now there's it's more of a, a general uh, clearinghouse, and that's complicated. Um, <laughs> it's gotten for the last couple of years. I, I can imagine um, with the Department of Homeland Security and all that being created. <laughs> okay, so what exactly? That's one element of security. What else is there? I mean, how would you define security? Because honestly, I didn't even know that there was a, quote, security side to um, CIA. Yes, it's it's not well known. In fact, that's one of the reasons I wrote my book, um, specifically to bring out that backstory. Uh, security has been involved um, in providing – well, we've got two types of security personnel. We have the uniform division which you would call, uh, which they don't like to be called guards. They're actually law enforcement trained. <laughs> um, they're actually full federal law enforcement. That's one. And, and the other side is what we call the generalists or you know the officer corps, you could say. And in that, that group, we're called multidiscipline security officers because there are multiple disciplines within security that we bounce from. So we become little jacks of all trade if you, if you stay in long enough. So you'll do a tour in physical security, locks, alarms, things oh, like that. Okay, so are you are you ones who may plant surveillance and things like that? Uh, no, we're talking about uh, physical security, is in like uh, making sure that the perimeter of uh, of our buildings is secure. Oh, okay, okay. Locks and alarms. Then, then another element would be like computer security. Uh, another element would be uh, in the personnel department working, working either uh, doing background investigations or reviewing the reports of the background investigations and adjudicating them. And then you had the protection side, which originally was mainly only the, uh, to protect the director of central intelligence. Mm-hmm. But in 1990, there was an event that caused us to change the way we did protection and add, a, add another element that would do overseas protection for our case officers. Now, a case officer is what you would call in common vernacular, the spies. But the truth is in our vocabulary, a case officer is somebody who goes out and recruits spies. Spies are people from other countries that will provide us with intelligence. Okay, that that, that makes sense. I've had Robin Dreek on. He is a counterintelligence with the FBI. Mm -hmm. And his job was to turn people. Or find people who weren't even necessarily bad guys or spies, just people, as he put it, who are in position to know things. Is that kind of what you do? That's what the case officers do. My, As a security officer, I'm part of the support element. And what I do is I support the, you know, the varsity, which is the, the case officers. They're, they're the collectors. They collect the intel, intelligence. Um, and that comes back into the organization and it goes into another directorate. So you have the operational directorate, you have the support directorate, support is what securities. And then you have the intelligence directorate. They mm. take the raw intelligence, they write it up, they review it, and they distill it into uh, highly analyzed 
intel intelligence, which then is passed to the policymakers. And those are the analysts. That's correct. Okay, so um, you have the case officers then is one leg, analysts is another leg, and security is a third leg? And uh, support, yes. And then uh, there's a fourth area called the Directorate of uh, Science and Technology. Mm. And the easiest way to, to look at them is kind of like Q. <laughs> uh, except not really. They, they're, all, they're involved in other um, technological ways to collect or um, uh, together information. So now when you are out to protect a case officer, and I'll just use hypotheticals, but like, sure. like if they're going into an area where there might be trouble, do you as security just sort of shadow and keep an eye on them or make sure their back's covered? Is that some of what you do? Prior to uh, to 1990, uh, we didn't have that capability. And what happened was there was a threat on on uh, uh, one of our officers overseas, and uh, a senior officer, uh, which we call the chief of station. And uh, the chief of station was uh, under threat, and we knew we needed to get some protection out to him, but we didn't really have it any training in that area. So, but we sent a team out, several teams. And what happened after that, after a review of that situation, they decided to form a brand new unit that was called the Protection Protective Operations Cadre. That's and you. That unit, yes, that's that's my old unit. I was one of the first. Um, I was in the first formal training class, and that unit was specifically trained um, to to do clandestine protection. So, in other words, low profile, unlike Secret Service with the with the the sunglasses and the and the sport coats and the suits, we are the exact opposite. You shouldn't see us operating. The case officers are supposed to be doing their work clandestinely. They're not supposed to, to attract any attention. So they needed some protection people who had that capability, which meant we had to go through a lot of training. You know, we, would, we stole a lot of information, uh, and I, I say that nicely, we borrowed from DEA, from um, law enforcement in terms of their undercover officers. We, we learned from the Secret Service. We used um, some of the military tactics. So we developed this protective operations cadre to go out and provide that kind of protection. And my book is basically the, the, the story of that element, which, you, which the public now knows as the security, uh, this annex security officers that saved the lives of the State Department people uh, in Benghazi, Libya. Uh, mm. uh, 9-11-2012. Hmm. And the movie is called 13 Hours and the book was called 13 Hours. And so yeah, this, is the, this is the prequel to this. This is the, under, the, the background on how that unit was formed because up until that moment uh, that the 13 Hours uh, came out, the, the, that unit was clandestine. Nobody knew about us. Yeah, for, what, 20 years? Yeah. Um, by the way, to correct you, I would hold on to stealing and think of the Picasso quote. <laughs> Good artists borrow, great artists steal. Yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll stick with steal then. <laughs> okay, so, so now, we stole a lot of data, and and um, the the my book is, chronicles. It's a historical memoir chronicling my twenty four years in the CIA, doing protective operations, counterterrorism, and security training in some of the worst places uh, in the world, and um, a lot of it. My story uh, is. The st- it parallels the story of this protective operations unit was started out being called the POC and then later on changed to another 
um, name called the Global Response Staff. But um, so this is the history of that. But it's also paralleling the whole war on terror. And I was very involved in, in um, terrorist activities, uh, uh, fighting against that, protecting our people um, from terrorist uh, elements. For example, when I came back from doing background investigations, my first job at the CIA was at the CIA headquarters. My first job was as a security duty officer, which is like the like the operations center, the watch center. And I was on duty the day that a Pakistani terrorist attacked the um, CIA's front gate, and they and this guy killed two of our officers and wounded three, and uh, and then he fled to Pakistan. And so I was on duty, called the ambulances. It was, a, you could imagine, a pretty chaotic event. But it was a, a, a real watershed moment for us. It was a, a, a life-changing moment for me. Yeah, you've talked about this before, and I thought it was interesting. You said that you were nowhere near as protected, or at least the individuals involved, like they would be now. And one of your answers I thought was interesting when people asked why and you said maybe some of it was depending on the mystique yes we were using we were uh, there there wasn't a lot of history of attacks on u.s soil it was it this was this happened prior to the the first attack on the world trade center and we were relying a lot on deterrence and um and the mystique and nobody really knew how we operated so that usually keeps the bad guy away but we're dealing with a new the new phenomena, this, uh, the radical fundamentalists and, um, who they're, they don't necessarily have an escape plan. Right. And, and I, I want to get into that a little bit because you're coming into the CIA such a interesting period of time. You literally got into the CIA two years before the Soviet union fell. So you were right at the very last minute of the cold war. And then you went into the war on terror and I think you've made statements before, and I think you'd agree that they seem like completely different mindsets, completely different everything. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we're, we're talking about in a, um, what we call diplomatic spying, um, the cocktail circuit. Uh, the Russians, if they get one of our guys, they may, they may rough them up a little bit, but we'll get them back alive. Um, contrast that with what we are dealing with now um, with uh, narco-terrorism and um, and uh, radical fundamentalists and all these other groups they're, they're, the violence level is off the charts the the the, the, the attacks that that they use um, car bombs airplanes into buildings um, total disregard for human life beheadings um, yeah. trashy museums it's literally the middle ages or medieval um, yes. I'm curious about this, and this is coming from no knowledge at all, but the timing seems pretty coincidental. Soviet Union falls in 91. Did that just take the lid off a can of worms that was being clamped down? I, I think, well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a historian except for the, the sense of I've had to be to learn a lot about history so that I can project. And I can tell you um, the the fact that we helped a country beat the russians out um, remember they were they were a, a superpower like mm -hmm. us afghanistan and, 
Yep. So in Afghanistan, we we helped uh, a group of fighters basically push uh, a superpower out of their country. The the euphoria of that moment spread worldwide because uh, that was the the jihad for mm-hmm. the the Muslims the, that were involved in that fight, and there were Muslims from all over the world who went because it was a holy war for them. And so you had Muslims from the Middle East, from Southeast Asia, from all over the world. Well, they were there fighting, and all of a sudden they have a victory over a superpower. Well, if we beat one superpower, we can beat another. And I think that's a very simplistic view, but it certainly opened up a new world um, possibility for them. And that's where the global jihad kind of kicked off. And the other thing is, um, uh, with the Russians now kind of crumbling, there was there's a lot less um, order in the world. There were there were mm-hmm. and there was there were some areas that were easily exploited. That's yeah. I was kind of I don't know if this is a good analogy, but I was thinking about how there are some mafia controlled areas in the country, and as the mafia got broken up, like gangs would move in, and sometimes the yep. violence would increase. Not saying that. The mafia was good or the mob was good, but it was kind of a known thing and they sort of were keeping it down a little bit. Yes, that's actually in some ways a good analogy. It's like um, a, a perfect example of that is is the Middle East. When I came into the organization, things were really bad in the Middle East. We had all kinds of terrorist groups. But then order kind of was established and Mubarak uh, was running Egypt and Gaddafi kind of turned over a new leaf for us. And he was running Libya and uh, even Assad in Syria wasn't um, allowing too much terrorist activity. So you've got uh, all these countries that are clamping down on uh, the radical extremists. Mm. Uh, So things got relatively stable. And then contrast that with now, where when Mubarak left and Gaddafi left, they left those countries in chaos. Egypt's kind of recovering, but Libya is not. And Yemen is a total, total, uh, well, it's, it's getting to be Mad Max. And, well, good. of course, it's always been Mad Max. I, and you can explain this probably better than most. Um, is a lot of this a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran? No, a lot. Uh, in fact, Saudi Arabia is—they're up to their eyeballs on their uh, against their own internal extremist groups. Really? Um, okay. Every once in a while, one of them strikes. Uh, there was an attack years ago in Jeddah against a U.S. consulate, mm. and um, that you know, there's a perfect example right in their own country. So there, there is some proxy. Stuff going on. The Iranians are very, very active in supporting terrorist groups, especially uh, Hezbollah. Um, but when you're talking about down in the Philippines, um, southern Philippines, southern Thailand, people don't know that you know the war. There's been a war, basically a war going on in southern Thailand for decades. It, it, at one point, it was the third country with the third uh, largest number of uh, improvised explosive devices going off. Yeah, I've heard that the Philippines is a terrorist. And down in the southern part of the Philippines, they've had terrorist activities for forever. Why? I mean, I I wanted to ask that because I've heard about Philippines being just really, really a bad problem and a hotspot. Why there? 
Well, there's a southern there's a there's a southern um, section down in Minden now that is uh, heavily Muslim populated, and there is a fight for control. And what's happening there is you've got instigators coming over from Malaysia and uh, uh, Indonesia, bad terrorist groups, and they and they stoke the the flames and they they bring in training camps and they try to um, and there and it spikes up. When I was uh, came out to the Asia in two thousand one, uh, it was it was a bad time because they were kidnapping American citizens, and it got to be a pretty um, aggressive element of terrorists that were siding with Al Qaeda. In fact, they they planned on blowing up the Singaporean embassy, and then they tried to uh, to do the the Manila embassy. And there was a lot of Americans in those in that part of the world, and we were. I spent uh, three years nonstop fighting against those guys. Before I met, then, I went on to Iraq, went from the the, the minor leagues to the majors. <laughs> Great, it, and that makes me think too. Um, wasn't maybe I'm wrong, but wasn't the origin of ISIS in Iraq Al Qaeda in Iraq? But it wasn't really Al Qaeda; it was just called that. There's so many intergroups that it's hard. That there are people who actually can contract that whole story. I'm not one of them, but I would not be surprised because when they splinter, you get whole new organizations and then they start taking on their, a life of their own. And, um, uh, but that whenever there's a vacuum now in the, in the Middle East or even in Southeast Asia, uh, unfortunately these guys, they, they're prime, um, movers. They come in and they will start their operations. So that's why uh, that's why you'll see you're seeing a lot more activity by AFRICOM, the the U.S. military's African command, because Africa is full of areas where there is no law and order. Somalia, Libya. Oh, it's just uh, down in some of those. Uh, I mean, the Boko Haram. Uh, we could go on and on. Nigeria has got all kinds of problems. So um, anywhere there's a vacuum where there's a, a, a there's no real order. They're at work building up. That's where they want to set up their training camps, and so we have a we have a fight. We have a fight on our hands, and uh, Homeland Security and uh, our home our home law enforcement elements have done a great job in um, discovering and thwarting uh, plots on our uh, on our soil. But the threats overseas are still there, and uh, and we spend a lot of time disrupting. I kind of get frustrated I though. I'm sorry. Oh, it's very. But uh, I was I was part of a unit. I, I was detailed to another unit, a counterterrorism unit, which, with one exception, has never been talked about before. And um, I was specifically working in Khartoum, Sudan, mm. which is not on your tourist map. Trust <laughs> me. And um, uh, we were working in every terrorist group in the world. Practically, we had a that was their vacation spot, and. Uh, Bin Laden was there, but he wasn't that big of a player then. But uh, we were able to actually get Carlos the Jackal, who was uh, a big, big player in, in the earlier days in Europe. Oh, yeah, he was yeah, hiding yeah. out. And, uh, he was the number one book. terrorist in the world. For a while, yes, he was. Elich uh, Romero Sanchez, right? Mm-hmm. Now, on yeah. him, previous guest I had on, uh, Eugene Casey, actually interviewed him a few years back. Wow. For a case that was in New York, a cold case. And 
he mentioned, and it's kind of amusing, but he felt that Carlos was happy to interview because he was tired of Bin Laden getting all the credit. He couldn't stand <laughs> that he's like a two-bit second player now. Absolutely. Everything that I've heard about that guy was he was his ego was huge. I mean, how we tracked him is we we caught him coming out of a uh, a lipos- liposuction place. <laughs> well, it's kind of Robert Ludlum's fault, isn't it? <laughs> oh yeah, he made him out to be pretty big, but he was still he still was a big player in uh, in terms of uh, he really worked the publicity angle. You know the, the activities he he did in in Europe. What I find interesting, though, about Carlos, especially hearing from Eugene Casey in the interview and different things, he really was not a believer, so to speak. It wasn't necessarily a religious thing. He was first off a communist, from my understanding. He was was all about him. Everything I'd heard was uh, he was all about him. Right. So it wasn't like really a holy war. It was kind of an opportunity, from what I understand to just get ahead or get some power or get fame. Well, back in, the, in those days, the, the terrorist groups uh, that were really operating in Europe, uh, Bader Meinhof, you know, the Red Army Faction, those groups, they were uh, they were uh, disenchanted college kids, mm. you know, uh, and so they were Marxist, Leninist types. But there there was no real religion uh, involved. Yeah, that was some uh, another thing that was interesting. Uh, Bin Laden was a disenchanted college student at one point yeah he was a rich kid i mean he yeah. uh, and uh he he just saw the opening uh, where he could he could really make his mark and and a funny thing about about bin laden i i mean my my story and his intertwined for most of my career i mean when i i in 93 i ended up over in um in somalia doing protection for our people and i left just prior to black hawk down and i was there when a group of 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 much more competent, you could call mercenaries, came into town, and they're the group that a deed, uh, yeah, where they're working with a deed, and they and they're the ones that dropped their helicopters. Um, and it turned out later that these were guys that Bin Laden sent. Mm. Now that's, and, that's that's something I wanted to cover because I, I, I'm frustrated. You've talked about a deed before, and the fact that you guys had to really watch your ass because he was CIA. Trained, or he was an asset at one point. He was and an asset, knew- trained, but yeah. Well, so he was Bin Laden. Top. Pardon? So was Bin Laden. Well, Bin Laden was uh, was part of a large. Think of it: how many people went through that that that's that process? We were we would take anybody who was coming into Afghanistan and help them out um, to go uh, knock off the Russians. So he was just one of. He was no, no. He was never on anybody's radar in the early days. He was just another right. guy, and uh, it's it's really unclear if he ever really partook in any direct action stuff. Um, he hmm. was he was more like a groupie, and uh, uh, but he was smart, very smart. He was educated, and he was uh, he had money, so he took advantage of that. Been um, Adid was another very. He was a very sharp guy. And what happened was he got he got himself into a little trouble, and the UN decided to to outlaw him. And at that point, he was fighting for his life, and he knew how we operated, and he knew who he had to worry about. It was us because we were we were the um, you know the brains in a way for the military in terms of targeting these guys. 
So he added a reward out for each of our, there were four of us working uh, that, that detail. And uh, he had a reward out for our heads and uh, he almost got it. <laughs> he almost got it. Just scary. Well, I, I just am wondering, um, and I'm sure you've heard it before. It seems like we're training our enemies or uh, is some of this self-fulfilling like, are we mucking around too much? Should we back off a little? I mean, I know it would be accessible, but I'm. Well, I'll, I wonder. It's 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 difficult because uh, things change over time, and at one point, an ally may turn into an enemy. So, uh, I I've worked with military people um, for most of my career, and a lot of them that were involved in the training, they've trained everybody. Right. And some of them turn into bad guys and some of them don't. Um, and what I mean by that, some some countries uh, were our allies. And then later on, you know, after we've sold them weapons and we've trained them, they turn into the bad guys. I, I'll give you a case in point. I trained um, presidential security, foreign presidential security elements uh, all over South America. And um, in one case, they we, they turned into my, to our enemy in Venezuela. So. Um, it, it's something that happens. Um, it, it may be at one point it's, 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 uh, it makes sense to train the military of one of our allies. Like for example, we, when I, when Iran and Iraq were at war. Oh yeah. Chemical weapons. Iranians. Guess who was our buddy? Oh yeah. I remember. Saddam was our so buddy. Yep. So there was some, there, there was, there was a reason for that. Now we didn't realize he was going to go you know, crazy and start trying to take over countries that there's no way we would allow that to happen. I mean, he's, nobody's going to allow them to take over Kuwait. So uh, he was, I don't think he was, uh, I don't think he was using all his faculties anymore. But I also can, around the bend. I can sort of see the people though saying, yep, that's our monster. And look, the U S is helping him. They like him. We don't like the U S don't, <laughs> what they don't see, though, is the, some of the they, – they don't seem to understand the success stories. Uh, we, uh, we were heavily involved in, in retraining and, um, and retooling Japan and mm-hmm. South Korea and Germany, some of the biggest economies in the world. That's a good point, and I will point out that that's part of the problem. I work in IT, mm-hmm. and – if we're doing a good job, then we're the Maytag repairman. We didn't do anything. So yes. <laughs> by essence, your job, if you succeed, well, nobody's going to see it. That's the CIA's job. If you, if you, all our successes, you don't hear about it. And you only hear about when we, uh, when we make a mistake. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, I mean, of course, you are right that the success is a Marshall Plan and all these other things. No. Eh. Well, what are you talking about? No, they're fine. They just healed up and they flew right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so welcome to Thankless. And you mentioned military a bit ago. Would you say that the CIA maybe pivoted to become a little more like special forces versus the cocktail circuit, as you said? Well, we've we've definitely evolved, and you hit something on the uh, on the head. We were we actually were pivoting away from the Cold War. When the when the wall went down, and we were looking, we were actually going to get into counter narcotics and um, uh, international crime, because mm-hmm. the truth is those two 
in some ways are bigger than terrorism. They fund it. In terms of in terms of, uh, of of the amount of monetary effect on the uh, on on the world economies, mm. international crime definitely, and uh, but what happened was terrorism jumped in, and so we had to retool. And a lot of the older managers at the at the CIA were so used to the cocktail circuit they couldn't understand that the enemy had changed. It was no longer they'll just rough us up. So it was a it was a constant battle to keep the protection uh, elements uh, staffed and um, funded and equipped because there was a, a, a fundamental philosophy issue. I mean, the CIA is not gun um, pro gun pro weapon, but here's the funny part: part of the CIA has always been militant. Um, hmm. We, we, from the OSS days, we've always had a paramilitary uh, element within the organization. That's right. You were around in Vietnam, weren't you? Because they, you would keep showing up as special forces people at different places. Yes. Well, I mean, we were uh, Mac V SOG um, was uh, military assistance, Vietnam um, special operations group. That's a famous unit. When that was the unit that was using, that was mixing CIA and military, and they were doing covert operations in Laos and Cambodia. Okay. So we, the our covert uh, side, which we get a lot of our people from um, from the military to do that because it's it's military type operations, but it's covert paramilitary. Uh, they have been involved in every conflict, but it, it waned for a while, and then it really came back during the wars. The, the more recent wars, and it's very. I mean, when 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 we got hit, nine um, eleven, and the first elements that went really to fight back against uh, Al Qaeda was were our paramilitary guys um, going into Afghanistan, and um, and then they were directing uh, military strikes. So that that was our that was you know right away our so paramilitary guys. You were hanging out with the SEALs and Delta Force probably immediately. And a lot of those guys are are ex those, because um, that's those that's a special skill set. Now here's another interesting thing: when when I was doing the uh, the original uh, protective operations cadre stuff, and we were all staff up until nine eleven. After nine eleven, the need was so great; there were so many um, team members needed that we couldn't keep up with staff, just our internal staff. So we had to start hiring contractors. Mm, mm. And that's where you got into Blackwater and things like that. And other, uh, and other, yes, other uh, um, services like MVM, um, and then you had like well, there's L three. I worked yeah. for L three. Yes, so <laughs> all started to supply uh, specialized personnel that would work within our our protection. We would we would have, and we had. A, but here's the difference. We vetted our people a lot stricter, and we had a better c- command and control. In other words, so, like the State Department, and this is all open source, they were running around with contractors, 20, 20 to 25 or more contractors for every staff oversight. Hmm. That's, that's okay. horrendous. But we are uh, – we, no, you know, we're a one in six or one in four. Well, I, I found it amusing because let's just say L3 had a whole lot of translators for some crazy reason. Like they seem to have enough translators for every person out there. 
<laughs> well, it's, it, that kind of intelligence, especially working in some of those areas where, where um, the, the, the languages are not so common, um, translation is huge. Well, Pashtun, but no, I meant, I, I think that a lot of them really weren't translators. It's just a good way to put them on paper. Oh, well, that's that's the contract world. <laughs> Take advantage of whatever whatever holes in the system they could find. Well, let's pivot to uh, another continent: um, South America, Central America, and you worked, I believe, in Colombia during Pablo Escobar's reign. Oh yes, really rough time to be down there. I was working with the. Uh, their presidential protection detail. I, I did uh, seven trips and um, I helped them uh, with the, the revamping the security around the palace and work with their DOS, which is the equivalent of their FBI and uh, very rough. Uh, I know on a, on a personal toll for those people. I, I there, everybody I met knew somebody that was killed by Pablo. Yeah. I, I, I assume I know everything about Pablo Escobar because I watched narcos. But you can fill in my missing well, spots. I'm not a, uh, that wasn't my specialty, but I just know from working with these guys. I mean, like, whoa, we had a, an event, uh, a dinner, and some of the guys brought their families. And one of the, the protection guys came up with his kid, and his kid had an, a, a serious scar going right across his face. And it, they told me the story that Pablo tried to blow up the DOS headquarters with a with a bus filled with explosives. And unfortunately, right next to the DAS headquarters is a daycare, and his this one guy's son was in that daycare. And when it, the, when that bus went off, it, he was uh, he was wounded. So these guys had a they really wanted to get Pablo, and they and they finally with with some help from the U.S. we we got him. U.S. and didn't he kind of isolate himself by that point where every other cartel wanted him to? Yeah, they they. It's kind of funny. There's a little blood in the water, and they turn on each other. <laughs> Look at Mexico. Mexico is it's bloodthirsty. Oh, I know. I was going to get to that later, but I'll jump in now. It am I correct? It seems like the problem has shifted. I'm not saying there's no problem in Colombia, but the the big, heavy, bloody problem has shifted from Colombia up to Mexico, including the kidnapping. Yes. Uh, well, we we realized that FARC was taking over had taken over almost half Colombia. And right. we realized what was going to happen if they got much more control. So we started um, really helping the Colombians clean that up, and they did. FARC was, was there they, for like 50 years, weren't they? I mean, it was a long time, if I recall. They were, yeah, they were very embedded, and now they're 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 marginal. But uh, Mexico uh, is a different animal. The, the, the government is so corrupt. Um the the cartels have so infiltrated that place. I don't. If you go down there to work, wh- who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, and how long are they good be- before you know the cartel gets to them? Um, yeah, that 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 place is. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a tough one. That's going to be a tough one to fight. And then you have the the, the na- I consider a national security issue is if the government there starts to get unstable, and their economy starts to to uh, slip. What's going to happen to our border? God only knows. What, what was it? Somebody made a joke, which is sort of true. He said, if you want to take care of Mexico, give it to Israel. Have them move there. 
and uh, I don't know. I, I, I'll, I'll uh, obviously it's a hypothetical. It's in our best interest to do two things: one, make sure that we can protect our borders, and the other part is, um, is is to to try to keep the the Mexican economy and their government stable, because that uh, that will have a direct. I mean, common sense says if all of a sudden things go really bad economically in Mexico, and and they're you know their per, their people start to really go into poverty. Wolves at our door. Yeah, I mean, you you can't blame them. They're going to come over, and they will flood our southern border towns, and we will go into martial law, and it, things will go into a whole new world. As a security guy, it's, for me, it's very clear. I, I, I you know, I, I can leave the politics to the politicians. For me, from a security point of view, this is that that's a national security issue of epic proportions. Um, yeah, I think everyone would agree. No matter where they are politically, they may say, let everybody in, don't let them in, whatever. I think everyone would agree that if things get out of hand, it's more than we can deal with. How do you keep things stable, though, with so much corruption running throughout? Is it that they're so poor that it's relatively cheap to do it now? Um, well, that there are you know people who are specialists in that area. For me, I have never really worked the Mexico problem, and um, from a security point of view, you won't catch me down there. <laughs> um, you know, there's opportunities in the private sector which I would never. For, for me, I'm, I'm done with the war zones. I don't know how many cat lives I have left, so uh, I, I wouldn't go. So it's it's a tough one because you're gonna you're gonna have to build up elements that you can trust. And you have to make sure that you, you're continuously vetting them to ensure that you're not being penetrated. You know, that's just some common sense. Um, okay, well, uh, and that's a perfect pivot because you mentioned, um, you know, not running out of your cat of 27 lives. Um, and you are, what is it, the grandson of a Titanic survivor? Yes, yes. My, uh, my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather, and my grandmother – Survived the sinking of the Titanic and made it to Milwaukee. That is amazing. Wow. That that's that's an amazing legacy to consider. Now, I've noticed, and maybe I'm wrong, it looks like now that you've moved to the private sector, you're one um, consulting with school protection. Are you now looking at things like active shooters and protecting schools in other places? Yes, but actually, that's that was a common theme throughout my entire twenty-four year career, which protecting people. So I I was very involved in training our people to go overseas and work in dangerous places, and the the methodologies we used uh, were very very effective. Um, and that same methodology is what I teach uh, to the private sector. Um, the hard part is getting the ego in check because. At, at the agency, if you go overseas and you get in trouble, you don't travel anymore. You stay home, mm. and nobody likes that. Make more money, and they like to travel. So we had a we had a pretty big stick, to, to, and people would think, okay, uh, I think I'm going to avoid a problem. I'm, I'm not going to walk down that dark alley. Yeah, it's a shortcut, but it's not worth the risk. Mm. The problem in the in the private sector is that people think, well, I you know I should be able to walk down the alley. Well, in a perfect world, yes, but. In, in reality, uh, no. And so our, our whole philosophy is the 80-20 principle, basically. Which Pareto. is uh, Yeah, exactly. It's, it's 80% of your time should be spent on avoidance and awareness. 
And then that 20% is dealing with um, stuff that you're going to have to mitigate. But trust me that 80% is super effective. Mm -hmm. It's a mindset thing. And it's the same principles that you would use for any crisis, whether it's man-made or natural. Um, if you if you work the basic principles, um, and it comes down to, to mindset, um, equipment, and um, and training, but you, your your mindset and your and your situational awareness are the two things that are really really important. And then of course, if you have the right equipment, that helps. And equipment could be anything, you know, in the sense of a cell phone, a flashlight, mm. some basic things, and then training personal safety things like um, uh, being able to deal with, uh, with bleeds or uh, CPR. Uh, these are mm. very basic things, but the, but the awareness, your situational awareness and knowing what to look for and, and pre-programming. Okay. I don't like the look of this. I'm out of here. So many times you, you're going to talk to people who say, Oh, something happened. And they go, well, I kind of, I kind of knew something was wrong. And that's their that's their gut basically telling them they should have got out of there and they didn't listen. That sounds like uh, Gavin De Becker um, gift oh, of his, fear. Absolutely, we stole uh, we stole all his stuff. <laughs> 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 we after after the after the shooter in, um, uh, at our front gate, we really started working with his organization and Disney to to really get Disney. up to speed. Yes. Oh, Disney's got a fantastic security element. That's why you hear nothing about Disney. Almost nothing. Yeah, but I so like that they keep it fun. So that no, I think this is really oh, yeah. important because you hear nothing, but it doesn't feel like you're in a a war zone or you know under guard or anything like that. Nope. No, it's it's um. They that's because they've they've mastered it. They are doing low profile protection. You don't even know they're doing it. That's, That's fascinating. It. So you guys in the CIA, well, you're not in there anymore, but you're not above going out to the private sector or any group. If it works, you'll take it? Well, uh, prior to that event, we wouldn't have, but that that woke us up to the, the threat. And from that moment on, we've done a lot more collaborating. Okay. Is that carrying over into the other agencies too? Like do you work more with the FBI, especially like – um, embassies Absolutely. and things. Yes, I mean, like we have a joint um, kidnapping. Um, like when when I was in Iraq in 0405, we had a joint um, uh, at, at kidnapping task force to try to get citizens back. Where we were all working together, um, we've worked the collaboration, especially since 9/11, has been um, tremendous between the different elements: how Homeland, the FBI. NSA uh, and and also a lot of our partners are our overseas partners, are, you know Canada, uh, the UK, Australia. Um, so there's a lot of collaboration, and we need more of that. I mean, you know, if I was going to get on my, if if I were in charge, that would be um, that's how we really really impact terrorism worldwide. Is we. We get a better network. We 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 basically put uh, Interpol on steroids and um, and really start to work against their their support elements because if their support elements can't get them what they need, they they fall apart. Starve them, hit the supply yep. line, so to speak. Make them make them difficult. It's you know I hate to say it because it sounds really bad, but it's like a cockroach problem. 
they're always going to be around, but you can really lim- limit their capabilities. Don't put the trash out. You know, make sure you, you know, you, you make sure that they, they don't have a food supply. They don't have, they're not able to travel. They're, you know, everything that you can to make their world very, very difficult. I'll give you a nicer one. Bears. Make sure you cover yeah. the trash and things so they don't come into camp. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just big and fuzzy. Not quite as. <laughs> That's it. I like bears better. <laughs> oh, fantastic. And I really appreciate you coming on. What is next for Thomas Bacora? I'm working on uh, a few more book signings. I'm hoping to do one at the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Nice. Um, a friend of mine, a uh, podcast friend of mine, Jason Piccolo's up that way. Yes. Yes. He's, uh, I, I've, I've seen his stuff. Yeah, you've been on the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, the book is Guardian, Life in the Crosshairs of the CIA's War on Terror. Do you have a website that you'd like to point people to? Um, yeah, it's uh, it's actually it's for sale on, on Barnes & Noble and Amazon. And there's also a uh, Facebook page, Guardian. Um, I have a lot of different articles on personal safety that I um, have written for on my LinkedIn page. So that you can go uh, Thomas Bacora on LinkedIn. Excellent. And then um, for those people who, who uh, want to see more color versions of the of the photos in the book, there's a, a YouTube that I put out. Um, and you have to look up under Guardian and Pecora and under YouTube and you'll I'll put, find I'll put links in the show notes because oh, you'll give oh, them to me. Yes, I will. <laughs> yep. Fantastic. Well, Hey, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, I appreciate being here. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com, and there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Welcome, everybody, to this promo for my show, Business with Super Joe Pardo, where I break down business lessons week after week after week after week after week. Whether you are new or a seasoned vet at business operations, my show will help you take your business game to the top. Looking forward to meeting you over at superjoepardo.com. Hi, this is Kara Mayer Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in L.A. and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's Really Famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session. 